Last week, Adam did a great job bringing us into chapter three as we continue our series in the book of Matthew, introducing us to that strange punk rock character, John the Baptist, who goes out into the wilderness, which as you know, if you read the the scriptural narrative, the wilderness is kind of the desert, the place of encountering God, the place where God begins to deconstruct things in our lives and to kind of rebuild us and remold us and reshape us and renew us. And so John here goes out to baptize and he finds something surprising happen to him here in verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me. Matthew is the only author of the four gospel authors to record this challenge from John to Jesus, the surprise and the confusion of John. These are Jesus's first words and actions recorded in the gospel of Matthew as an adult. So like this is kind of like Jesus's ordination service into ministry or his, uh, if you're, you know, in like marketing, this would be like his public brand launch, you know, Jesus going public. And John is surprised. And the only way that I can kind of put this in a contemporary, like uh, a contemporary setting is um, imagine that whatever your field is, or like if you have kind of a a celebrity that you admire, um, maybe you're in music or art or leadership or finance or medical or whatever, like imagine the person kind of at the top that you respect the most. And let's just say you were going to some sort of an uh, invite-only event at somebody's house with this person, and you show up, and I don't know, Simon Sinek if you're in leadership, you know, Warren Buffett if you're in finance, and they get ready to have the talk, and you're going to get certified and get all this wisdom, they stop and they say, hey, you know what? I think really what we need to do in this moment is have Brandon come and share. Uh, Brandon, can you teach us about finance? You know, can you teach us about, like, can you, can you mentor me? Like, I, I've really been reading your stuff and listening to your sermons. I really feel like I need to learn from you. Or imagine, you know, LeBron James, whatever you think about him, good or not, he's, he's coming to Indy in a few weeks and could maybe break the scoring record uh, when he comes into town. But imagine you're there and you've got nice tickets that some of you guys uh, can get behind the bench on the first row and LeBron's out warming up for the game and you're excited about watching him play. I mean, one of the great athletes of our generation and and uh, LeBron comes over and he's like, hey, I know like um, you're here to kind of see me paid money, but um, man, I had some questions. Could you, could you kind of mentor, could you be my shot coach? Like when I spent, is it this way or that? Like how do I, and like LeBron just is kind of like asking you, like that's, that's kind of what's happening here, right? Like all of John's expectations about the Messiah, about the King, about the one that is supposed to be leading him get flipped on their head when Jesus says, Will you baptize me? Will you, will you do this for me? And Jesus responds by inviting John to, and I think us, surrender our expectations and our mental maps of what we think should happen when God shows up in our lives, how we think God's kingdom should work, because it's usually not the way we think. That's how you know you're kind of approaching like kingdom territory, is when the things that, that seem to make sense all of a sudden don't, and things get strange and weird. That's how Jesus works. And so basically, Jesus' answer to John's question, like, and this is the kind of the fundamental question John's asking is, why do you need to be baptized? You're, you're God. You're the Messiah. John knew that he was the, the one of whom all the prophecies spoke. And Jesus says to him, this is the way for us. Notice not just me, but for us. He's inviting him in the, in the larger community of faith 
This is the way that we are going to fulfill our righteousness. And remember, fulfillment is one of the key themes of Matthew 1 through 4. Fulfillment is all of these threads from the Old Testament and the story of God's people all coming together in the life of Jesus. And like, again, I've used this analogy every week, a good Christopher Nolan film. Sometimes it only all comes together in the last five seconds, and then you have to watch the film backwards, okay? And so it's like, as we look backwards on the story of God, it only makes sense if Jesus is the climax of the story. And he says, we're doing this to fulfill all righteousness. And righteousness, if you want to circle that, highlight that, underline that, that is one of the key words in the book of Matthew. Righteousness for Matthew basically means wholeheartedly doing the will of God. And Jesus is saying from the beginning, it is my intention to live wholeheartedly as the righteous one in every detail of my life. I'm not going to skip over anything in fulfilling my mission and my calling. And so this is a continuation of where we kind of ended chapter two. Jesus here is representing Israel. He's representing and succeeding at every point where Israel failed to live out their God-given identity and calling in the world. All of this imagery here in chapter three, just like it was in chapter two, is drawn from the story of Israel. Jesus going down into the waters, right? The spirit hovering over the waters, supposed to remind us of Genesis chapter one, emerging from the watery chaos to bring flourishing and life to the world, hearing the voice of the father, you are my beloved son, right? Exodus chapter four. It's all new creation, new Exodus language here. And so Matthew's essentially just once again telling us who Jesus is. Jesus is the righteous spirit-anointed servant and son of God who's going to lead not only Israel, but the entire world, all of us, all of humanity, into a new creation and a new exodus through his life and his death and his resurrection. But there's something else happening here that I want to draw our attention to today. And it's equally as important as this theme of representation in Matthew, and, and it's identification, identification. And what I mean is Jesus is not being baptized for the same reasons that you and I would get baptized. He is not getting baptized because he's a sinner who needs to repent, which is why John was baptizing people. Jesus is getting baptized because he's identifying with sinners right at the start of his ministry, not because he is a sinner. But right at the beginning, he wants to say, I am identifying with Right? Like, I'm not going to be this, this God who floats over top, like some kind of mythical, heroic figure who floats over top the problems and the pains of humanity. I'm going to crash right into the middle of all of the pain, and, and I'm going to essentially take this story into my own so that I can give this story as a gift to you. I love the words of Dale Bruner, the New Testament scholar. He says, I consider this incident Jesus' first miracle the miracle of his humility. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it into the deep waters of baptism and repentance. And Jesus' whole life will be like this. It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming as completely one with us in our humanity, that should say, as in the church's teaching, he is believed to be completely one with God in eternity. Historically, the church has read Jesus' baptism. It's not only about his life and ministry and calling, 
but as the inauguration of our own, our baptism as followers of Jesus into the loving presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's why he starts Jesus's ministry with baptism. And then what's the last thing Jesus tells his disciples to do before he leaves? Go and what? Baptize them in the name of the Father who's present here, the Son who is here, the Spirit who is here. Continue to do what I've already done. This is now your ministry. What belongs to me now belongs to you. As the church father Athanasius once said, Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. He became like us in our humanity so that he could make us like himself. This is what we call the doctrine, if you want to get theological about it, the doctrine of, the, of our union with Christ. And that sounds like a real head trippy word, but it's actually not. It's a beautiful phrase that just simply means this. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us as his people. Everything that's true of Jesus is true of us. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Everything that's true of Jesus is now true of us. And so you could, in a sense, say there are three gifts here. At least there's a bunch of stuff going on here, but three gifts in Jesus's baptism that the Father is giving to Jesus that now by right of inheritance as followers of Jesus are given to us and Jesus is inviting us to share in. And that's what I wanna just spend our time thinking about together here today. Three gifts that Jesus invites us to share in as a result of his baptism. The first is the gift of intimacy. The second is the gift of a new identity. And the third is the gift of spiritual authority. Identity, intimacy, and authority. Let's take those one by one. If you notice in verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. And, and here's the key, and this is astounding. The heavens suddenly opened for him. Now, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when the heavens open, you'll read that in places like Isaiah 63, Lord, rend the heavens and come down, right? You'll hear that language of the, the skies, the heavens opening up to God's people. It just is kind of a, a way of saying God is about to speak. But what's unique about Matthew's, what Matthew hears, the voice that Matthew hears, is not only is the heaven, are the heavens opening, but it says this little prepositional phrase. You guys know that I have this weird obsession with grammar. My mom was an English teacher. I can't help it. This little prepositional phrase, the heavens were opened for him. That is unique in the Bible. For the first time, the heavens are opened for a person. And what Matthew's saying here is that God is publicly demonstrating to the world, speaking where everyone can hear at Jesus's coming out party, at his ordination and ministry. He wants everyone to know that Jesus has the divine welcome. Jesus has God's embrace. Jesus has, you could call it intimacy with the Father. God the Father wants there to be no doubt that all the time, everywhere, Jesus has complete access. God is saying, I am radically open to this man. I, he has access to all of my love, all of my kindness, all of my grace, all of the resources of the Trinity are available to this man. I mean, that's, that's pretty much all that there is, right? All of God's love is all that there is. And he says, I'm radically open. He belongs to me and he has access to me. Think about that. Jesus has access to the Father and to the Spirit. He's open. What that means for the rest of Jesus' life, 
as a human being and on into eternity, just like it had been true in eternity past. Jesus doesn't have to prove himself to anybody. Jesus doesn't have to fight for resources. He doesn't have to manipulate or coerce anyone. He doesn't have to defend himself. Like, that's what it's like, right? When you feel safe with a person, when, when somebody is radically open to you and you feel safe and you know you belong in relationship with them, there's this kind of ease and confidence and vulnerability that you operate with, that you don't with other people, right? You have any relationships like this? Maybe you don't. We're like, you just know it's, it's okay here. I have four kids, and um, they're, you know, in their teenage years. We're all in their teenage years together. Um, and, and it's beautiful. It's awesome in, in ways. But I miss when my kids were little, like when I opened the front door, they would come and they would run and they would just want to hug me. And they were so excited that I was home. And now it's like, hey, dad, you know. <laughs> uh, but the other night I had this opportunity. With one of my kids was sitting on the couch. And like, if I get one of these moments right now in a month, it's, I love it. Um, but my, one of my daughters, uh, just was sitting, we were sitting on the couch together. And uh, she just snuggled up next to me and just kind of laid her head down on me. And I'm like, okay, be still, don't move. <laughs> don't, startle the, don't startle the wild animal. You know, this is like a rare sighting here. And she says, Dad, will you watch Sister, Sister with me? Reruns. Now, if you don't know Sister, Sister, it was like this great 90s sitcom for those of you over 40. Uh, I, I never watched it, as you can imagine, as a teenage boy. But like she, I love that she had the confidence just to go, will you watch Sister, Sister? And I'm like, yes, I will watch Sister, Sister, and I will love every minute of it. And it was so fun. Like the kind of safety and security to ask anything, right? Even that, even to watch old episodes of Sister, Sister. Like she knows that she has access to intimacy with her dad. Like that's the same kind of idea when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, ask anything of your heavenly father in my name and he'll give it to you. That's the kind of confidence that God wants us to have with him. But here's the thing. Unfortunately for many of us, because of sin, because of our wounds, that's not how we operate in most of our relationships, even our closest relationships. I mean, you ever feel like you don't belong? You ever feel like, like you're not safe with people? I feel like we're always kind of walking around, or at least I'm walking around, searching for like a sort of welcome and a sort of intimacy with, with people. Like, I get in a room like this with lots of people. I'm right on that introvert line, but I am so insecure. Like, think about how you walk into a room, how you walk into a cocktail party, how you're going to walk into work this week or, or maybe Zoom into work this week. And like, you know that, just those feelings that you just feel, like that anxiety begins to rise, the shame begins to rise, the wounds begin to rise. And basically, we're like moving into these different spaces, just like saying, like, it's kind of like being a middle schooler again. Like, do you like me? Am I smart? Do you think I'm smart? Am I funny? Are you my people? You know, do I belong here? Like, that's, that's what we're doing at work. That's what we're doing in our community. That's what we're, what we're doing all over the place. But we're often looking in the wrong places to receive the welcome. We have these safety schemes because of wounds from our childhood, right? Where we, we think, if I can just achieve and work, then, then people will welcome me. Then they'll think I'm smart. Then I'll belong in any room. And we look for that in performance evaluations. We look for that welcome and that intimacy in, in sex and pornography. I mean, for some of us, that's a safety scheme. Or, or maybe we, we look for that welcome in, in kind of humor and sarcasm and words. 
And, and, we, and we, we can't help but always be responding with sarcasm because it's a way that we kind of keep people at arm's distance from getting too close. We look for that in, in tribes, political tribes. We look for that welcome and that intimacy. We look for that in our families. We think, if I can just create my little safe space here in my home, then I'll be safe. And the truth is, we do the same thing with God. We feel anxious. Have you ever feel anxious in the presence of God? I was sharing with some pastor friends this week. Uh, a friend of mine asked, how's your kind of life with, with God? And I said, I just, I'm noticing like in the morning when I wake up, one, I'm not wanting to get up and really meet with God always. And when I do and I show up, I find myself like checking my watch. Like how much longer do I have to go? <laughs> how long is this passage gonna be? How can I not get too deep in this? Because I'm, I don't know, there's like, some, I don't know what's going on. I just feel like I'm avoiding intimacy with God. I feel anxious. I feel insecure. I feel defensive in his presence, not open. And yet he's radically open to me. It's weird. And I don't know about you, but like we can theologize about the love and the intimacy that we have with God. We can recite liturgy about it. We can even tell others that we do. But for many of us, it's just not a lived experience at the core of our being. We don't open ourselves truly when we sing, when we pray, when we worship, when we give. And we don't love as if what is true of Jesus is true of us, that we have the divine welcome, that the heavens are open to us. I mean, think about that right now. Do you really believe that God is open to you in the way that he is open to Jesus? You have God's attention. Maybe you grew up and you didn't have your parents' attention. You didn't have your siblings' attention, and you don't get the attention of your boss or the attention of your spouse or the attention of your children or grandchildren. You don't get social media attention and likes and follows. But I want you to hear this verse. I was meditating on this as I was thinking about my own life this week. Psalm 66, I came across this passage, and I just stopped. It's an amazing passage. God has listened to me. He has paid attention to the sound of my prayer. Blessed be God. He has not turned away my prayer or turned his faithful love from me. There's never a moment in your life when God's attention is not fixed on you. When you don't have his face, when you don't have his smile, when you don't have his welcome, he is open. And the challenge for us is learning to just return the favor, right? To open ourselves and to learn to approach God with what Christian psychologist David Benner calls an undefended state. No pretense, no pretending, no maneuvering, just saying, here I am, God, all of me before all of you. And this is why it's so important that we pay attention to the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit falls on Jesus, and one of the things the Spirit is doing is creating that space for intimacy, right? Jesus, in his humanity, still needed an intimate connection with his Father, and the Spirit, going back to Augustine, they've interpreted the Spirit as that love connection between Jesus and the Father. Romans 8 is a great passage for this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And that sonship language is not about gender. It's about inheritance. The sons, the firstborn son, were the ones who stood to inherit the family fortune. So he's saying, if you're in the Spirit, you've not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the most intimate language possible. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You have access to the radically open presence of God in Christ. The intimacy Jesus shared with the Father and Spirit are available to us. But not only do we share in his intimacy, we've also been given a second gift in the baptism of Jesus, a new identity. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Another translation says deeply pleased. Another translation says delighted in. Jesus' baptism, I don't know if you guys know this, Jesus' baptism is one of the most important passages of Scripture. And it's been one of the most personally meaningful passages in Scripture for me. It represents a sort of paradigm shift for the way that the New Testament talks about our identity as the people of God, both corporately and individually. Our identity meaning like our sense of self, how we see ourselves, how we see God, how we see the world. Only twice in the Gospels does God the Father speak directly from heaven. Once here and once at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, 5 takes them up on the mountain, and he says the same, basically the same exact words, except he says, listen instead of look. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The voice of the father wasn't just for Jesus' benefit. Everyone heard it. It's an identity declaration for all disciples of Jesus. This idea of Jesus being the son in the Hebrew scriptures goes back to Exodus chapter four, God's calling of Israel. You are slaves in Egypt, but I'm going to make you sons, children, holy nation, priests. And it's also a reference to Psalm two, the anointed son of David, a descendant who as Messiah would bring the reign and the rule of God to earth. And so this has deep kind of roots in Israel's story about the Son of God and what it means to be the Son of God and how Jesus is fulfilling that, but also identifying us as sons and daughters of God. Two things that I want you to see about Jesus's identity that I think are very important for us in our own identity now. First, I want you to see that the love and the affirmation of the Father was poured out on Jesus before any ministry performance before Jesus' first sermon, before Jesus' first public ministry appearance, before he healed one person, before he delivered one person from demonic influence, before anything else, he hears, well done, I'm pleased with you. The rest of his ministry, I think, I think, and a lot of scholars think, is lived from this statement and is sustained by this deep sense of identity, of being God's beloved son. It drove his ministry. It's what allowed him to go to the cross. The second thing is that notice that Jesus' Jesus's identity came from heaven, not from the earth. We don't know exactly when and to what extent Jesus understood his identity as the Messiah, but almost everyone acknowledges that his baptism is the key event where his identity and calling are publicly celebrated and personally internalized. Jesus' identity comes from above, from the Father who speaks over him, 
and it goes deep inside to the core of his being. The spirit seals it, burns it like tattoos it into his soul. That means that Jesus, if he gets an identity from above, from heaven, refuses to root his identity in any other competing voices. And there are competing voices, right? What happens right at the beginning of the next chapter, chapter four, Satan takes him out into the wilderness. Actually, the spirit drives him out into the wilderness. We'll see next week. The spirit drives him out into the wilderness and Satan immediately begins to attack what? His identity. You, if you call yourself the son of God, do X, Y, and Z. So he refuses to listen to the voice of Satan. He refuses to listen to the voice of the crowds, the praise of people or the criticism of people. He refuses to listen to the voice of power, powerful political leaders like Pilate. He even, this is crazy, even refuses to define himself by his own ter- internal voice. He says, it's not my will, but the Father's will that drives my life. Think about that one for a second. This is how Jesus got his identity. So I ask us this morning, where do we get our identity? From heaven, from above, or from the earth? See, identity formation is an interesting thing. How we see ourselves, how we form an identity for ourselves. It's complex, and I don't mean to simplify it. But it's interesting if you think about how we carry our identities. Before, for, for most of human history, before the Enlightenment, at least in the West, People discovered their identity by conforming to norms and scripts and roles that were handed to them by their external environment, right? My dad is a cobbler, therefore I am Brandon, son of a cobbler. And you just kind of performed that role that was handed to you by your family, by your work, by your social institutions, by the expectations of your ethnic group or whatever. We still carry some traces of that, right, in the way that we talk about or think about our own identities. For some of us, we define ourselves and our identity is shaped by performance. I am what I achieve, so I do this for work. I mean, what's that question we ask each other? What do you do when we first meet each other? Identity statement. And then we kind of compare. I am what I achieve. For some of us, we define ourselves by our possessions, external things. I am what I have. Our clothes, our houses, our coffee, (laughs) our vehicles, our lack of vehicles or whatever is all identity statements. Some of us define ourselves by our political ideology. I am my party platform. I'm a conservative. I'm a progressive. I'm a libertarian or a negative kind of political ideology. I am whatever my enemy is not, you know. Now, that's kind of historically how it's happened. In the last couple of decades um, and centuries, it's it's beginning to shift, though. People no longer derive their sense of identity, for the most part, from external. They actually have begun to derive it internally. We live in a secular moment where we've rejected the historical and kind of external norms and expectations handed to us by God or religion or our families or our institutions. Those are all kind of oppressive, uh, inherently oppressive. And so now where do we look for our identity? We don't look outside anymore. Where do we look? Inside. We look inward to our feelings, our desires, to find an identity for ourselves. We live in what Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity, where the goal is self-expression, to look inside and make sure that our external environment conforms to our inner sense of self, and then we perform that publicly. And so maybe for some of us, our sense of identity now comes through pleasure, 
right? What is it I desire? I mean, a lot of our gender and sexuality conversation really comes down to how do we define identity? Does it come from outside of myself or inside of myself? Do I determine my sense of self and my gender, my identity or not, my sexuality or not? Again, it's complex, and I don't want to reduce it down to only that, but this is kind of what's these identity statements. We collapse everything to how I feel, and then morality becomes about aesthetics, not about ethics and norms. For others of us, we take the opposite approach. We don't define ourselves by pleasure, by what we want, but by pain, right? I am my trauma. I am my wounds. And we live out of those wounds, and we, we kind of show up in the world as wounded people, and that's kind of the center of our identity, And at the core, these identities are just ways that we cope with a broken world, right? We try to cover ourselves with the fig leaves of these identities. I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. I'm nobody. I'm unlovable. So I'm going to cover myself with this identity. They're kind of masks that we try on and and take off, only to discover that they don't bring about the peace and the happiness that we thought they would. And the problem is not with any particular aspect of these things. Next slide, um, this is called the diversity wheel. If you're familiar with this, if you've ever done any like DNI training, diversity training, or uh, maybe you've done intercultural studies, this is essentially all the different aspects of our identity, all the different lenses through which we see life. There's nothing wrong with any of these, right? And so different eras, we've defined ourselves by different ones of these things, different aspects of our self, you might call it. There's nothing wrong with any of these alone. The problem is when we attach to them at the level of our core identity. When we bring them into the center, which here, because this is not a Christian uh, framework, is just our personality, just me. But when we take anything and bring it into the core and attach ourselves to that identity, we are attaching ourselves to something that is partially true of us, but not all the way true of us, and not our deepest identity and the truest part of us. And so the ultimate issue is that all of these other identities are unstable and unsatisfying. Because what happens when you lose your wealth? What happens when many of us did during COVID, we lose our jobs? What happens when we lose our marriages? What happens when we lose our kids or our parents? I'm no longer father of or son of. What then? These identities are too unstable. As the circumstances of our lives shift and change, so does our sense of identity and our sense of inner peace. We never arrive. We can never feel adequate. We can never say, okay, I'm here. Now I'm good. Now I can relax. We live in this sort of baseline anxiety and insecurity and restlessness that just leads us to exhaustion and burnout. That's why I love Jesus' baptism because he critiques both the kind of traditional conservative narrative that identity comes from outside of you and externally from institutions. And he critiques the more progressive way to think about it, that it just comes from inside of you. He says, no, your identity doesn't come from around you on the earth. It doesn't come from inside you. It's a metaphysical source. It comes from above. It comes from God. That's what Jesus is doing. And like Jesus, we must receive our identity from heaven, not from the earth. We are God's beloved children in whom he is well pleased. Jesus takes this truth and he opens himself to it and he brings it into the core of his being like a fire that rages inside of him. And despite the changing circumstances, despite the suffering, despite the persecution, despite the poverty, despite all the humiliation that Jesus experiences, nobody can touch that differentiated core 
of Jesus that knows he is deeply loved by his Father. That's what you need, and that's what I need. Do you hear that? Like, do you really hear that? Can you just receive that? Can you hear the Father and the voice of the Spirit saying to you, you are God's beloved son and daughter in whom he's well pleased? That's a gift. You see, we spend so much time trying to construct our own identities. It's exhausting trying to perform. Christian identity cannot be constructed. It's a gift to be received. That's what makes Christianity, I think, unique. It's the only religion in the world where you don't have to build your identity through some sort of religious performance. David Benner again says, Christians affirm a foundation of identity that is absolutely unique in the marketplace of spiritualities. Whether we realize it or not, our being is grounded in God's love. Love is our identity and our calling. In order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. Next, uh, next slide, if you could uh, slip it over. It's got to come from external and internal into the core of who we are. Christ in me, the hope of glory, becomes the thing around which everything else is ordered. Our identity, he says, is who we experience ourselves to be, the I each of us carries within. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. Wouldn't that be weird if we just started talking like that? Who are you? I'm a person deeply loved by God. But like, that's what we need. Like, instead of saying, I'm a person who makes X amount of dollars or doesn't make X amount of dollars, I'm a person deeply loved by God who happens to make this money for right now. Man. One more layer, and we'll be done. Another layer to the story of Jesus' baptism, another gift that I want us to see. And, And I just want to hit this quickly, but I want us to see, because in this moment, I think this is so important. I want us to see where Jesus looks for power and authority to do his ministry. So Jesus has intimacy with the Father. He's been given this identity. And then look where he goes for power and where he doesn't go for power. And it's subtle. Notice verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee. Jesus doesn't look for power in Galilee. There's nothing for him in Galilee that's going to give him the resources to do his ministry. Galilee, if you don't know anything about Galilee, Galilee's, I mean, no offense if you live outside the city, but like, I'm just using your all's language. It's like growing up in Danville or growing up in, you know, like Greencastle, just like some rural place where nobody is, like if you grow up there, but I, I know somebody who's not from Indianapolis and they say, I'm from Indianapolis. Because if you're from Indianapolis, you're like, no, I'm from Broderpool. It's like people outside trying to claim Indianapolis so they don't have to say I'm from Danville. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Galilee is this place of obscurity. It's rural. It's poor, a lot of poor folks, uneducated, uncultured. I'm from Kentucky. These are my people. Backwoods, nobodies in the eyes of the cultural elites. But what you see about that is Jesus knows he can't reach there for power. He has to come out of Galilee to the wilderness to get power. He can't look to family connections because he doesn't have them. Anybody know what that's like? 
He can't reach for social and cultural power. Isaiah says he's ugly, like he can't even depend on his own beauty. He he can't depend on his education, his wealth, his work resume. He doesn't have it. So he has two options. He can look inside of himself and rely on his own strength or look outside of himself for some sort of cultural institution to power up. And notice the contrast of Jesus with the religious leaders. That's what they did. The scribes looked to Rome. The Pharisees looked to their own morality for power. What do you do when you see your own weakness? When you feel your weakness? When you feel exhausted, when you feel lonely, when you feel anxious, where do you reach for power? When you see your own weakness, it's an opportunity like Jesus to leave Galilee, to look outside yourself to the resources that are available to you. Jesus had a spiritual authority that came from the Father through the power of the Spirit. And that is what we need, friends. We don't need to reach. If we've discovered anything the last couple years in the pandemic, it is that we are weak. We're weak. We're fragile. We don't have what it takes to build the world that we long for. We can't even do it in our own souls and our own families. We need that kind of spiritual authority that Jesus has that doesn't come from human power, doesn't come from human wisdom, doesn't come from our education or sociological explanation, but it comes from the Spirit. Because that's where Jesus looks for power. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him and saying, in him I'm well pleased. Again, all of the imagery of the Spirit is all Old Testament language and metaphor, taking us back to Isaiah 42 to 55, the servant of God. What do we know about the servant of God, Isaiah 42? This is my servant. I strengthen him. I give him my power. I give him my authority. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. That's the language. I delight in him. I've put my spirit on him. And he will bring justice, what we all long for, but can't do in our own power. He will not cry out. He will not shout. He will not make his voice heard. He's not going to resort to violence. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He possesses power. He possesses authority, but not how we think about power and authority. He has the kind of power that is what Dale Bruner calls dove power. I love that word. I love that phrase. Dove power. Like John the Baptist is all like, bring the fire, bring the axes, bring the shovels, hit them upside the head. You know, he's going all revelation, apocalyptic on them. The eagle, the lion, the tiger. He's all Jesus' second coming. Jesus is like, no, no, this is my first coming. You got those mixed up. I come with the spirit of a dove. I mean, not super impressive. Like, none of us have a dove on like our family logo over our hearth, if you have one of those crest things. Nobody has a dove on their like LinkedIn profile. I'm as strong as a dove. (laughs) It's meant to be a paradox. But see, right from the beginning, Jesus is saying, I'm not gonna be like the evil one. The evil one in chapter four tempts Jesus to power up in his flesh. It's the temptation of the garden. You will be like gods. 
grasping, dominating, coercing from a place of anxious reactivity and violence. But when the Holy Spirit falls and immerses Jesus and baptizes Jesus, he doesn't lead him upward to a position of dominance. He leads him down to the place of a servant. You will be everyone's servant, Isaiah says, and you'll get trampled on. That's the kind of power you're going to have. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to yield. You're going to serve until you're dead. This is dove power. This is the gift that's given to us, even though it maybe doesn't feel like a gift. It's not the way the world operates. It's not the way that Babylon operates. It's not the way the dragon operates, but it is the way Jesus operates. And I just want to encourage you, and I'm, I'm just going to close here in a second. I want to encourage you. I know that many of you are walking through seasons where you feel weak, where you feel your powerlessness like you've never felt it before. You feel your hopelessness. You feel discouraged. You feel lonely. You have family members who are sick, and they're not getting better, and you're exhausted. You have children who are experiencing dark struggles. You have jobs that are grinding your soul, grinding your relationships that feel like a dead end. Some of you are single, and you thought that was just for a season, and that's becoming a long, never-ending season, and you feel like an outsider everywhere you go where there's families and people who are married. Some of you are wrestling with your sexuality, and you're tired of being faithful to Jesus, and you want to just do something different. For some of you, your marriage has hit a wall, and you don't even know if you're going to be married three months from now. Some of you have secret addictions that nobody else knows about that you can't seem to stop and you feel powerless and you'd be humiliated if anybody knew. You feel weak. And can I just encourage you? That's the moment where you have insight into access to a new power that you didn't know you had access to maybe three months ago, or maybe three weeks ago. You have access to the power of the Spirit of God, access to God's presence and power this week, as I was feeling my own weakness in the midst of our house flooding and just life being crazy and all the things that we had going on, I, I was meditating on, I came across 2 Corinthians 12, and God just, just like landed this right in my soul. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. That word perfected doesn't mean perfect, it means mature. It's matured, it's strengthened as you admit your weakness and you look outside of yourself for help. As we're emptied of our strength and our resources, you know what? We make room in our souls to be filled with the Spirit. And that's what Jesus did at his baptism. He's emptying himself of any other agenda, any other source of power, so that he could be filled with the Spirit. And he's in that moment tasting the future glory that was waiting for him on the other side of crucifixion that would empower him to be able to bear poverty and crucifixion and death. And we have access to the same Holy Spirit, the same glory in our own hearts. The Holy Spirit fills us, empowers us to become suffering servants who also, like Jesus, can give ourselves in humble love for the sake of others. You just put your stuff away and we'll go to communion here. I want to invite you into this space, into a space of reflection. And as we think about this passage and where we find ourselves in this day, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Everything that's true of Jesus is true of us. 
this journey of living into the intimacy and the identity and the authority that Jesus promises us that we have access to right now in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our fragility. This is a slow, painful process. This is not something you just come to church and you recite the words and then all of a sudden you're superhuman, you know, you're superpower Jesus with your cape on. No, it doesn't work like that. It's slow and it's painful. I love what pastor and author and former Colts player, Dr. Derwin Gray says, being born again happens in an instant. Learning to live as a child of God takes a lifetime. And so can I just invite you into that life? Can I just invite you this week, maybe, to take this passage in Matthew chapter three, just as a practical invitation from the sermon, and just meditate on this passage. Just soak your imagination with this passage. Would you just put yourself in a posture for five minutes in the morning or five minutes at lunch or five minutes in the evening or all of that? And would you just open yourself to a God who is so radically open to you in Jesus Christ, who has poured out his spirit on you in love and who longs for you to hear his words, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Would you just sit with that this week? Would you sing that? Would you pray that? Would you hear that? Can we, can we speak that to each other? Can we just like show up in community this week and, and like rehearse that and recite that to each other? Hey, you're God's beloved son or daughter in whom he's well pleased. Let's let that be the thing that anchors our identity this week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word of encouragement. Thank you that you have done everything for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you for this gift in Jesus' baptism that is for us, that we can experience fullness of life. We can experience intimacy with you. We can experience an identity that never changes, that we're your beloved children in whom you're well pleased because we are in Christ. And we have access to all the power, all the resources, all the strength that we need to live one more day, to live one more week, even when we feel like we can't. God, help us to reach for that power, to never forget that, and to open ourselves to what you want to give to us as we live in that paradox of a grace that's made perfect and a power that's made perfect in weakness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to